Matthew chapter 13. And as you're turning there, I think, unfortunately, we often tend to look at people and kind of dismiss them, write them off, judge them, treat them a certain way just based on an initial encounter with them. I was reminded uh, when I was going from junior high to senior high, from eighth grade to ninth grade, we as a family, we moved. We moved from northwest Indiana to uh, western suburbs of Chicago. And I know this is hard to believe, but I was kind of a nerd. <laughs> Don't laugh. That's mean. Um, I know it's hard to look at me now. It's the picture of all things cool. But I was, I was not. I, I, no, I was definitely a, kind of a nerd and an outcast in junior high. I was picked on a lot. And so when we moved, I remember very specifically thinking, this is my chance. Nobody there knows me. They don't know my history. They, they don't know how many times they beat me up. They don't know these things. I can be somebody completely different. And so I determined in my mind, I was going to get to know the cool kids. I was going to hang out with the cool kids. I was not at this point in my life caring about Christ at all. And I was determined to be socially accepted. And I remember the first week of high school. I went to a fairly, fairly large high school. I think it was about 2,000 kids. Um, and it was a big L-shaped building, which is a horrible design, especially in Chicago in the winter, because every child, all of those 2,000 people had to get through the midpoint of that L. And it was an absolute nightmare. And so what you would do is you could go outside and you could make the shortcut between the two legs of the L. And it would shave off a lot of time and you could actually get to, to class on time. They gave freshmen the furthest away lockers in a basement. It was awful. And so anytime you had to get to your, your locker was a run for your life. And so I remembered thinking about this and I planned it out after this class. I'm going across the, the quad or the area, whatever it was, I'm going to go across, take the shortcut. I know what I'm going to do. Came down the stairs. I went outside and everything looked completely different. And I realized I'd come out on the opposite side of the building. And I turned around. I think I've shared this story. But I turned around and there was another freshman looking at me with this look on his face of utter despair. And I was like, hey, I think I went the wrong way. And he goes, I figured you knew where you were going, so I followed you. <laughs> and I'm thinking, how do you even know if we have a class together? Like, why would you follow any, maybe he thought I'd lead him to the lockers, I don't know. And what was interesting too was that this guy was, he was, I don't know, I guess you might call him kind of alternative or sort of punk. Um, later on, we might describe them as goth. It was kind of one of those outliers, like didn't want to be socially accepted, right? And so I'm looking at this guy and like, this is not somebody I want to hang out with. This is not, like, this is not the cool kid. Kind of like, stay away from me. You're not the cool kid. Wouldn't you know it? I go to my next class and sure enough, he's there. And the class after that and class after that. His name was Brian and we became really good friends all throughout high school. Weirdo, complete weirdo was into things I could never be into. I wish I could tell you you became a Christian someday. I, I pray that's true. But Brian and I, I had wonderful times of talking together and hanging out in school. Kind of one of my weird friends. 
there was another class I sat down in. I can't, I think it was like British Lit or something. I sat down. You pick your own seats in this class. And there was a kid that walked in. And as soon as he walked in, I was like, oh no. That guy's kind of nerdy. He's not dressed cool. And I was like, please, please don't sit by me. Please don't talk to me. It was like looking in a mirror, honestly. I saw in him myself, and I was like, that's not who I can hang out with. Once you know it, he came, and he sat right behind me. I was like, ugh. I'm not making this up, too. I was a little frustrated. This is horrible. And then he started talking to me. Like, hey, uh, how are you? I'm new here. I mean, we're all new. We're freshmen, right? And, And I was like, yeah. And he asked me a question. I answered it really quick. And it was kind of one of those answers. Like, please quit talking to me. Wouldn't you know it over the next four years? His name was Jamie. We became really good friends. He did come to know Christ. I invited him to church. And he came to my youth group and got saved. And I hope he's walking with Christ today. Best laid plans, right? The point is God is good even when we're really stupid. And we do if we're honest with ourselves, have a tendency to dismiss people. And I'd like to say that was limited to my childhood experiences. It's probably not true if I'm honest with myself. And I think if we're all honest with ourselves, it's not true. We tend to dismiss people. And that's bad. What about when we put that on Jesus? What about when we look at Jesus and say, well, I've got him all figured out. I know what he's all about, and I don't need that. Or, or I want this aspect of who Jesus is in my life, but the rest of this stuff, well, that's just offensive. I don't want that. And, and I'm going to dismiss that part. Like Jesus becomes kind of your choose-your-own-adventure book or something. You remember those? We just want to pick and choose who Jesus is and how he applies to our lives, and we want to dismiss him. We're walking through the Gospel of Matthew. And I've chosen as the theme for Matthew, the king has come. Matthew starts out in his first chapter calling Jesus the Messiah, this promised king. He traces his lineage. It's a kingly lineage. He talks about the king who has come. And all throughout Matthew, there's this presentation. Here is Jesus. Here is your king. Here is your savior. And there's this lingering question. How are you going to respond? And in the chapter or the passage we're going to look at this morning, unfortunately what we're going to see is that people will dismiss him. We're coming out of Matthew chapter 13. We're looking at the end of that chapter and the beginning of 14. And if you've been here the past couple of weeks, we've looked at Matthew 13 and these incredible teaching segments called parables, these profound, deep truths that Jesus taught. Very publicly, he taught these amazing things. One of the, either one of the best sermons or a collection of some of the best sermons ever. Just phenomenal teaching. And we spent several weeks walking through that. And the theme there is that this message of the kingdom, this message of salvation goes out, but not everyone will accept it. And the first parable of the kingdom is called the parable of the sower or the soils. And that some people have hard hearts that reject the gospel. Some people, they seem to accept the gospel right away and they're all gung-ho. And then the trials and the tribulations of life come in and choke it out. And what we're going to see now in the next section of Matthew is we leave behind a teaching section and we enter kind of a narrative telling us what happened in his life. You're going to see the parable of the soils at work. And you're going to see people, 
Some that were really gung-ho for Jesus, maybe for the wrong reasons. Some that just completely dismissed him and rejected him outright. So we're going to look at this passage. And the first thing we're going to see is Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And the people of Nazareth are going to dismiss him because they already think they have him all figured out. And they don't need him. They don't need Jesus. Jesus grew up there. They knew him as a child. They know his family. And basically what they're going to come to is, who does this guy think he is? Why does he think he has anything to teach us? So let's look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 to 58. I'm just going to read through it, and then we'll, we'll pick through it slowly. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown. He began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Jesus finishes this amazing time of teaching goes to his hometown, goes into the synagogue where the Jewish people would gather and does what he does often. He begins to teach them. And it's interesting because they recognize and have heard he has incredible skill in teaching. An amazing teacher. They've heard and maybe even witnessed that he's done profound miracles. All of these things are known about Jesus. But think for a moment what his hometown would have also have known about him. Do you remember the scandal of Jesus' birth? Mary, Jesus' mother, is pledged to be married. She's engaged. She goes away for a trip to visit her cousin Elizabeth, and when she comes back, she's either showing that she's pregnant or will be very shortly. Small town, Nazareth. Imagine the news that traveled very quickly. <gasps> Have you seen Mary? She's pregnant. Well, how did that happen? I don't know. She's not married yet, is she? No. Nope. They're just engaged. <gasps> is it Joseph's? I don't know. Maybe it happened when she was visiting her cousin. We don't know. Could you imagine the scandal that rose up? Who does he think he is? Who is this Jesus? And so all of this is in their minds as he comes and he's trying to save them from their sins and they're just dismissing him. And look at the text. Verse 54 says they were amazed at his teaching. One translation says astonished. They understood this guy's a good teacher. He's saying good things. This is really important. They even admit that he has wisdom and that he's done miraculous things. They're not dismissing any of that. Man, this guy's amazing. But look at what they ask. Where did he get these things? This is a question of authority. Who does he think he is? Who gave him the right? Because we know him and he doesn't have the right to talk about these things. Who does he think he is? You know, you would think, you would think that hearing Jesus' teaching, being a witness of that, seeing Jesus' miracles, being a witness of that, that that would be enough to change 
your life. How many times have we thought, if I could have just been there, if I could have just seen it, I'd be so much easier to believe. History says otherwise. Verses 55 to 57, they talk about Jesus' family. It seems that Mother uh, Mary, Jesus' mother Mary, and the brothers have moved away. Sorry, there's supposed to be text up there. Well, that didn't happen. Oh, well. Uh, They seem to have moved away. We saw them at the end of chapter 12. Jesus has several brothers. He evidently has several sisters. This is contrary to what some churches teaching teach that Mary remained a virgin forever. That's clearly not true. That's not what scripture teaches. She had a whole bunch of kids. And they know the family. It appears also that Jesus' sisters still live in Nazareth because they say, aren't his sisters with us? They must have grown up and married some local guys. And it's like, yeah, they live right over there. We know his family. They're right there. Think about what's going on in their minds. Okay, he's a great teacher, works miracles. But we know him better. And we can't accept what he's saying about himself because we know him better. Verse 58, it says that Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. They were hard-hearted, just like the parable of the sower. They refused to accept what Jesus said and what he did, and there was really no point to doing any more miracles there to prove who he was because they had already dismissed him and judged him. We dismiss Jesus because often we think we know better. Now, I hope and pray that none of you would be like, I know better than Jesus. I think most of us would know, like, you don't say that. But how often do we say, well, Scripture says this, but can't really mean that in the world today. That's us saying, I know better. Well, Jesus calls us to follow him and leave everything behind. Well, I don't really have to give up this thing. I know he says it's wrong, but it's not that big a deal. That's us saying we know better. We need to be careful that we don't just dismiss Jesus because we think we know better. Let me give you just a couple application points here. It's easy to settle for being amazed at Jesus' teaching and his actions. It's easy to settle for being amazed at a Christian or a religious experience. But feeling or experiencing amazement or being amazed is not really life-changing. It's just an experience. These people were amazed at Jesus, but their hearts were still hard and they weren't saved by Jesus. Ask yourself, am I truly submitting to Christ and believing in him, or am I just amazed and in awe of him? Don't settle for just being amazed. The other thing that's really interesting here is that while the people saw the miracles of Jesus, they had no faith in him. Miraculous things cannot create faith. They can support faith. They can encourage faith. But I think all too often we fall back on thinking, if I could just see something amazing, then I would believe they saw many amazing things and they still did not believe. They rejected what they saw. We need to be careful that we don't dismiss Jesus thinking we know better. So that's one group. We've got the people of Nazareth. Now we turn to chapter 14 and we see another individual, a man by the name of Herod. 
Herod Antipas. doesn't say so in the passage, but that's who we're talking about here. And here Herod dismisses Jesus because of fear. Well, (laughs) my slides are acting weird. All right. Herod dismisses Jesus because of fear. Let's look at the passage, verses 1 and 2 there. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist who has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So just two quick verses, but then he's going to give us the backstory, and we'll look at where that comes from in a second. But understand why why Herod dismisses Jesus. He's scared. He's terrified because, as we'll see in a second, he had this guy, John the Baptist, put to death and he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist come back to get him. Which is really interesting because just think for a moment how arrogant and self-centered that really is. Jesus has gone all over Israel by this point, teaching, healing people, performing miracles preaching and teaching amazing things. And Herod comes to the conclusion that all of that was about Herod. What's really weird is that Jesus began doing all these things before John the Baptist ever passed away, and yet Herod is still saying it's John the Baptist. The narrow-mindedness to make Jesus all about him is incredible. There is an incredible selfish arrogance about this man. Matthew helpfully gives us the backstory of why he feels this way. And I do want to look at that. He kind of gives us this flashback, the the story of what happened to John the Baptist and why Herod is so scared. If you look at verses 3 through 5, it says, Now Herod had arrested John and bound him in prison and put him in prison because because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had the head of John, or had John beheaded in prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. That's a mess. These are messed up people. Here's what's going on. Herod Antipas was a son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was king when Jesus was born. Herod Antipas was not actually a king. It calls him a king in this passage. He called himself a king. He made the people call him a king. That's why it uses that word there. It also says earlier on that he was the Tetrarch. That's a little more applicable. Herod the Great's kingdom was divided into four pieces, and he inherited one of them. So he's more like a governor but he thought very highly of himself, in case you can't tell from this passage. Herod was married. And he goes to visit his brother Philip, and he falls in love with Philip's wife, Herodias. And he steals her, takes her home, dismisses his present wife, and marries Herodias. 
Herodias had had a daughter, Salome, from Philip, Herod's brother. Now, as messed up as that is, it gets worse because Herodias was Philip's niece. Well, his wife is his niece. So now Herodias, who was also Herod, I can never say that right, Antipas' niece, is now his sister-in-law slash wife. There's a country song in here somewhere. (laughs) Sorry if you like country. That was probably really offensive, but truth hurts. Um, (laughs) This is a messed up family. He just steals her, takes her home. And again, even if you know nothing else of this man, he is a messed up, sinful, horrible person. He was a wicked man who did wicked things. And as part of his ministry, really a small part of his ministry, John the Baptist's ministry was preparing the way for Jesus. That was the big part of his ministry. But along the way, he also called out the sins of Herod. He said, this is wrong. This is wicked. Herod liked to say that he was a good Jewish person. He didn't like to act like it whatsoever. But he liked to say that he was, and he wasn't. So one day, Herod throws a party. And again, we have to read between the lines here. Roman parties were horrific. Drunkenness, scandals, debauchery. They were awful, horrible things. He calls his stepdaughter in to dance for them. This would not have been her showing off her ballet routine. This was a seductive, promiscuous dance with his stepdaughter who was probably between 12 and 15 years old. This is messed up. Now understand that somehow she dances so well that he is so impressed that he says, I'll give you anything you want. This was how Roman emperors would speak. We own the world. You can have anything you want. This was not how a local governor could talk. Herod thought way too highly of himself. But he says this to his daughter-in-law. She goes to her mother, Herodias, who is also quite the piece of work. And she has this plan because evidently she didn't like that John the Baptist was calling her and her husband wicked, awful sinners who were going to hell. I guess they were offended by that. And so Herodias tells Salome to go back to Herod and to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And if I'm reading the text correctly, it appears to me that during the party, John the Baptist is beheaded. And during the party, a platter is brought out with his head on it, handed to a 12 to 15 year old girl who had just danced seductively and who then took it to his mother. This is messed up. The world is a dark and evil place apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this is why Herod is scared of Jesus. Because Jesus reminds him of his guilt. Jesus reminds him of his shame, both his own sin, which I'm not sure he cared that much about, but mostly of the public humiliation that John tried to drag him into. Jesus reminded Herod that he was a wicked sinner. And you know, it's pretty easy to dismiss someone when they remind you that you're messed up. 
so many people stay away from Jesus Christ today because we don't want to deal with the fact that we are wicked, awful sinners. And so many churches, preachers, Christians are taking that part out of the gospel so that people don't have to admit that they are wicked, awful sinners. But if we're not wicked, awful sinners, what do we need to be saved from? The power of the gospel is that we are lost but can be found. We are dead but can be brought back to life. The one is completely lost with the other when we quit talking about sin. Herod did not want to go back to thinking about what he's done. I think we can relate. We don't want to face things in our own life. We don't want to face sin that has invaded our very souls. You know, it's kind of like not wanting to go to the doctor for fear that you might have cancer. It's a real fear. I I can't imagine facing that fear. Many of you have had to deal with that on your own or with a family member. And it's terrifying, I'm sure. But think about just not going to the doctor because you don't want to hear that news. It doesn't change the fact that the cancer's there. All it does is keeping you or keep you away from getting treatment for it. And that's what Herod did. He said, I'm just going to remove everything from my life that reminds me that I'm a sinner and I'm just going to live in my little bubble. And history records that he was a weak horrible leader and a weak, sinful, wicked man with a very screwed up family. And I wonder what difference Jesus would have made in his life if he had not dismissed Jesus simply because he was so scared. There is one last thing I want to look at before leaving this passage. Because we've talked about Herod, but there's some things we need to look at here with John the Baptist. Because while I've been talking about dismissing Jesus and people judging Jesus, John the Baptist experiences something different. He is dismissed because of Jesus. And dismissed is a pretty light word there for someone who has his head removed from his shoulders because he was preaching about Jesus Christ. He is killed for his faith. I want to read the passage again. And I want you to think about And hear this from the perspective of John the Baptist and what he went through and what he lived. Let me read for you verses 3 through 12 one more time. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl and carried, who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. They went out and told Jesus. What happens to John the Baptist and what history records happened to many of the disciples, many of the early followers of Jesus, 
forces us to confront the very difficult truth that followers of Jesus Christ will often be dismissed by this world and sometimes ultimately dismissed in terms of even losing our lives. In chapter 13, we looked at two parables of great treasure, the treasure that was found in a field and the pearl of great price. And Jesus used these to say that the kingdom of heaven was worth more than anything else in our life, more than everything else in our life. And in each of those parables, the person that found the treasure went and gave away everything. John the Baptist is a picture of those parables. He gave everything for the cause of Jesus Christ. And I said last week that that truth has to mean something for us. It meant something for John. And just think of what that meant. He was faithful in his service. From birth, he was set apart. He lived as an outcast, living in the desert, wearing camel hair, eating locusts and wild honey. He was a wild man, all so that he could be a prophet for God. This is what God called him to do to prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And this man that lived faithfully in very difficult circumstances loses his life for a party favor because of a messed up family and a seductive dance. Talk about being dismissed. But you know, John was faithful. And every moment he pointed to Jesus Christ. And he was never afraid to call sin, sin. And he kept on being faithful. And this passage records the very unfortunate end of of John's faithful life. He was used as a political and personal toy and then was tossed aside. But friends, that's not the end of John's story, is it? See, I believe he is in heaven with the Savior that he pointed forward to. And he's experienced the kingdom of heaven right now. And if he could come back, he would tell each and every one of us, it was so. The treasure is greater than anything we stand to lose. I pray we are willing to be dismissed by this world for the sake of Jesus Christ. And more and more as Christians, we are facing that difficult issue. I received a call yesterday from a good friend in a very difficult situation where if he stands up for Christ, he is going to lose his job. I said, Dave, what do I do? And I said, friend, God is faithful. You put one foot in front of the other following Jesus, and you let him deal with the consequences. And I pray. I pray for him. We have three pictures here. Three different responses to Jesus. The people of Nazareth dismiss Jesus because they think They know better. Herod dismisses Jesus because he's so scared. And John is dismissed by the world because he trusts in Jesus. You know it's bad when we dismiss people like I did in high school. That was weak and shallow of me. But it's worse when we dismiss Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I challenge you here this morning to search your own heart to say, Am I dismissing Jesus or am 
by bowing at his feet and accepting who he is. Hearing about Jesus is not enough. Being amazed with Jesus is not enough. Seeing miracles is not enough if we still dismiss who Jesus Christ truly is. My challenge to you today is to accept that Jesus Christ is your King, your Lord, your Savior, and He is worth all that you are and all that you have. Don't dismiss Jesus. Because when you accept Jesus as your Savior, He will never, ever dismiss you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is like so many other passages in Scripture. This is a challenging and sobering passage. And Father, I pray for anyone here today is holding on to excuses in their own life of why they can't accept your Son, Jesus, as their Savior. And I pray for anyone who's holding back following you and applying your truth to their lives because they think they know better. I pray for anyone who is afraid, afraid of facing truth in their life for what it might reveal. God, help us to see that the grace that comes with that is so far greater than the difficulties we have to face. And the freedom that comes is so far greater than that which entraps us. And the healing that comes is so far greater than that which infects us. And so, Father, may we not dismiss Jesus and help us to see the many ways that we do that day in and day out. May we instead be challenged to open our eyes and our hearts to what you're saying through your word and to say, yes, I accept who Jesus is and I will keep on following him. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.